Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. With birds, it tends strongly to be that males advertise because they want to be chosen by females and females do the choosing. So when we see these weirdly colored birds that are either brightly colored or very obvious in their markings, The reason that they are that way is because females choose the ones that are that way, and they've been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years. A male cardinal is is bright red because females choose red cardinals who are advertising wanting to be chosen as mates. And in a way, this is one of the strangest things in the living world, I think. A lot of these beauties are really arbitrary. In one bird, it's red. In another bird, it's blue. Another bird has a a big crest or a long tail or something like that. And the only reason is females like it that way, and they won't settle for less. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make, a literary magazine. The focus of my contributions to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Dr. Carl Safina. Dr. Safina is an ecologist and author of books and other writings about the human relationship with the natural world. Audubon Magazine named him among its 100 notable conservationists of the 20th century. Utney Reader listed him among 25 visionaries changing the world. Dr. Safina's work explores how we are changing the natural world and what the changes mean for human and non-human beings. He sees that the durability of human dignity and survival of the natural world will depend on each other. We cannot preserve the wild unless we preserve human dignity and we cannot conserve human dignity while continuing to degrade nature. His lyrical nonfiction writing fuses scientific understanding, emotional connection, and a moral call to action. His work has won the Lenan Literary Award, Orion Book Award, National Academy's Science Communication Award, the John Burroughs, James Beard, and George Rabb Medals, Pew and Guggenheim Fellowships, and a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Dr. Safina's books include Song for the Blue Ocean, The View from Lazy Point, A Natural Year in an Unnatural World, A Sea in Flames, The Deep Water Horizon Oil Blowout, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, and others. He hosted the 10-part PBS television series, Saving the Ocean, which can be viewed at pbs.org. 
He contributes frequently to CNN, National Geographic, The New York Times, Audubon, The Huffington Post, and others. His most recent TED Talk received a million views in its first month. He is the Endowed Professor for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University and is founding president of the not-for-profit Safina Center. Dr. Safina's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2020's Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace, published by Henry Holt & Co. Some people insist that culture is strictly a human feat. What are they afraid of? This book looks into three cultures of other-than-human beings in some of Earth's remaining wild places. It shows you, if you're a sperm whale, a scarlet macaw, or a chimpanzee, you too experience your life with the understanding that you are an individual in a particular community. You too are who you are, not by genes alone. Your culture is a second form of inheritance. You receive it from thousands of individuals, from pools of knowledge, passing through generations like an eternal torch. You too may raise young, know beauty, or struggle to negotiate a peace. And your culture too changes and evolves. The light of knowledge needs adjusting as situations change. So a capacity for learning, especially social learning, allows behaviors to adjust, to change much faster than genes alone could adapt. Becoming Wild offers a glimpse into cultures among non-human animals through looks at the lives of individuals in different present-day animal societies. By showing how others teach and learn, Safina offers a fresh understanding of what is constantly going on beyond humanity. With reporting from deep in nature, alongside individual creatures in their free-living communities, this book offers a very privileged glimpse behind the curtain of life on Earth and helps inform the answer to that most urgent of questions, who are we here with? Welcome, Dr. Safina, and thank you for joining us today. First off, let me just say, your book is quite extraordinary. For starters, you are a beautiful writer. I'm not sure if we'll have time, but I'm tempted to ask you about who your literary influences are. Your book is not only beautifully written, but it's also full of fascinating history, informative biology, interesting ethology, beautiful profiles of individual animals, animal species, and the researchers seeking to understand them. Above all, it's really informative in ways that not only educate, but also move the reader to a greater appreciation of the diversity of life out there. It's really a wonderful book, informative and evocative, as was your book, Beyond Words. I literally, this is true, I literally was moved to tears by the A Perfect Wolf chapter of Beyond Words on The Wolf 21. So you are a wonderful writer of wonderful books. I just wanted to say that. I'll take it. Thank you so much. It's very kind. As a way to begin... I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, training, and the focus of your work. I've always loved animals. I'm not sure why exactly. I grew up in an apartment in Brooklyn until I was 10 years old. My father's hobby was raising canaries, so there were always birds singing in our apartment, and I could watch them from inches away as I was a very small child. When I was seven, I started to raise homing pigeons, which was a very popular thing at that time. And then after we moved to the suburbs, I sought out the, the edges and the shores and the streams and the, you know whatever places had not yet been developed and uh, just became, I guess, more immersed in 
nature, the natural world. When I was in high school, I sort of accidentally met a man who used to study birds and went out with him many times to band birds, put numbered rings on their legs as part of the study. And then I wanted to try to continue this into a career of some kind. So I went and studied environmental science. And after I graduated from college, I went to graduate school for ecology and began studying seabirds. My time on the water with studying seabirds and with fishing alerted me to the fact that many of the fish populations were really being devastated. And I worked a lot on fisheries policy reform and fish conservation, mostly in the 1990s, starting to be a long time ago now. And then I I wrote a book about that subject called Song for the Blue Ocean. And that was another pivot in my career. After that, I've been focusing on writing books and speaking about the books, which is what we're doing now. Your book is about culture, and yet it is called Becoming Wild. What is the connection? As you write, quote, to learn is to become. Some animals cannot become without a social group. Social animals must live in, be part of, and help create their appropriate social context, or they cannot be or learn to become who they are, end quote. Put differently, you write, quote, becoming wild requires an education, end quote. What must animals learn to become wild? An education in what? In culture, of course. Culture is what animals must learn to become who they were born to be. But what is culture exactly? And what do you mean when you say that animals must learn culture to become themselves? Well, I guess an easy way to envision what I'm talking about is just to imagine something like a chimpanzee raised in captivity, brought to the natural habitat, and then just having the door opened and everybody leaving. That that chimpanzee would be not so much released as abandoned and it would die because it has no idea what to do. It has no idea where the food is. It has no idea where the water is, has no idea what is okay to eat, what's poisonous, where the danger lies, how to stay safe. It has no social support, has no social group, and it's doomed at that point. A chimpanzee needs to learn everything in order to be a wild chimpanzee. It's very similar to how humans need to learn everything in order to function within any society. We are born with the capacity to learn how to function in any society, but unless we learn how, we won't know. So if you take somebody who knows how to live in the Arctic and you put them in the Amazon rainforest, they would die. If you took somebody who is from the Amazon and dropped them off in the Arctic, they would die. Culture is is a set of answers to the question, how do we live here? And this is true with humans, and it's also true with quite a few animals that have and rely on culture and cultural learning. Culture is the habits, the traditions, the preferences, even the attractions that are passed along socially. They don't come to you entirely instinctively. You have to learn them. That's what culture is. 
humans are very cultural and some other animals are also entirely reliant on culture to be able to learn how to survive in a life that we think of as a wild life. But to them, it's, it's a cultured life. You use the example in your response of chimpanzees. And of course, chimpanzees do have rich cultures. But some listeners may be thinking, well, chimpanzees are very similar and closely related to humans, so that's not much of a surprise. But your book demonstrates that there are many diverse species that have cultures. It isn't just the ones that are most closely related to humans. You could say the same thing about a whole array of things. Sperm whales, orca whales, probably any dolphin, elephants, wolves, quite a few birds, especially parrots. There was an introduction program for species called the thick-billed parrot that used to live in the southwest United States. They had raised a number of them in captivity so that they could release them back into the range where they used to live. And they just raised them in captivity, brought them there, and opened the cages. Every single one of them died. That's the importance of culture. So that's the what of culture. How about the why? Why do animals have cultures? To be clear, I do not mean why do they have specific cultures. In some cases, there may be intelligible reasons as to why specific cultures develop. But in other cases, things may be more arbitrary. Animals, just as humans, can be capricious in their tastes. But I'm not asking about individual cultures or individual animals' aesthetic tastes. Instead, I'm asking why cultures exist, period. What challenges does culture address? What benefits does culture bestow? Culture exists, as I mentioned, to answer the question, how do we live here? And the reason that that's a question is that living here is different from living there. There are different challenges. There are different things you have to do. Some places you need to migrate. Some places you don't need to migrate. Some places the food is different. The dangers are different. So culture exists to answer the question of how do we live here? How do we hunt these things that exist here? They don't exist somewhere else, so we need a culture on how to hunt these things. The other ones who live in the other region, they don't need to know that. Some of it is arbitrary, especially in human cultures. A lot of human culture is arbitrary. It could styles of dress, religions, to a large extent food, could exist one place or another, but they develop in certain places and they become how we know how to live here. It works. That's another reason that there is culture. It's worked out over many years, and so it works. If you try to live a totally different way in a place where others of your kind have already worked it out, you'll spend a lot of energy. You may do something dangerous. You may eat something poisonous. So those are all reasons why there is culture, especially in non-humans, which is what we're mainly talking about. But it's true for humans as well. I've heard a point made that is maybe somewhat related. First, there was genetic material. That was the original memory storage device. But after a certain amount of time, the genetic material was not able to store the amount of information that organisms needed to survive and flourish in a rapidly complexifying world. And so this is when brains are developed. Brains allow for the 
albeit somewhat temporary storage, of vastly greater quantities of information than DNA. Then again, very, very recently, when brains were no longer adequate, a new memory storage device was invented, the written word. And then again, even more recently, when that was proven insufficient, the computer was invented. Which is a long way of getting to my question, which is, do you think there's anything to the idea that as memory storage is moved out of DNA and into brains, that is when culture begins, even if in a very rudimentary capacity. In this sense, I suppose DNA would be associated with nature and brains and memories with nurture. There is no nature versus nurture. Nature facilitates nurture. You can't learn something that your brain is not capable of learning. So humans are born with the capacity to learn human type language. We're not born with any language at all, but we're born with the capacity to learn a human type language. Whether we learn a Swahili or English or Japanese is totally a matter of culture. And we are not capable of learning how to sing like humpback whales or, or like canaries, but humpback whales and canaries are capable of those things. So nature facilitates nurture. And if it facilitates it often really very specifically. I don't know about the capacity thing. I think that culture is more about the fact that there are different ways that work to live from place to place. And some of those ways are discovered and are passed along socially. And when I say discovered, for instance, with chimpanzees, getting back to chimpanzees, they're a good example. We can envision them pretty well. In some places, they crack nuts by pounding them with stones. They put a nut on a stone like an anvil. They take another stone that's like a hammer. They pound it open. There are nuts and stones in other places where chimpanzees live where they don't do that. They haven't figured that out or haven't needed to figure that out. But any chimpanzee who grows up among other chimps that crack nuts with stones can easily learn how to do that. So there are things, and humans, are, of course, we're, our cultures are always changing. We're always discovering things that we didn't know about before. That's true of other species, but with other species, it happens at a much, much slower pace. A, a danger for us thinking about humans is that our cultures have exploded only very, very recently, but there were tens of thousands of years where cultures changed very, very little. It's more like that when you talk about the other species that have culture. And not, not all other species have culture. Not all other species rely on living in social groups. Some of them do get everything they need strictly from instinct. Some of them get the behavioral tendencies they need from instinct, and then they learn skills. They have to refine certain things that they have uh, an innate tendency to do. They, they learn how to do that better and better, which is why many animals have a long juvenile period before they are mature and can start breeding because they still need to learn things. And other animals must grow up learning everything from their social group. So there's a range. Like in all of the living world, everything exists on a range. Every subject you want to talk about there's a range, and culture is one of those things. You note that until now, culture has remained a largely hidden, unappreciated layer of wild lives. You make this point firmly, quote, 
For the last 30 years or so, the diversity of all things, biodiversity, has been thought of as operating at three main levels. The genetic diversity within each species, the diversity among species, and the diversity of habitats, grasslands, forests, deserts, oceans, etc. But there's a fourth level in living diversity, and it is just now becoming recognized, cultural diversity, end quote. Your book makes such a strong case for how central culture is to animals, on both the individual and species level, that it is somewhat difficult to believe that it has not been studied more in depth previously. How do you account for that? It's very hard to study, first of all. And secondly, people have not been watching wild animals and their behavior in a lot of detail for very long. It's only been really a few decades that people have had those kind of studies and have devoted that kind of time to it. Cynthia Moss, one of the one of the great and initial elephant behavior researchers, she was one of the maybe two people who started behavioral studies of elephants, and she is still working, which gives you some idea of how recently all this has happened. She said that after she was watching the elephants for 20 years, she started to realize what they were keying into when they responded to one another. And when um, the matriarch initiated a move for the family. So if you have to watch for 20 years to understand with your human mind, these things that for us are very, very subtle, but are, are essentially the, the language or the communication that elephants have, then you know that shows you that it's, it's a subtle thing for us and we have to watch very carefully for a long time to see what's going on. The other thing is you kind of need a lot of data to compare to understand what culture is because the learning of culture doesn't look like much of anything. It mostly looks like babies going around with their mothers or young ones in a social group. You can't tell just by watching how much they're learning or what they have to learn and what won't come to them completely instinctively. You need quite a few studies so that you can compare. Well, these ones do this, or these ones don't do that. These ones do this other thing. These ones over here, they have the opportunity to do what the ones you saw doing do, but we never see them doing that. Why is that? Oh, well, because that's only something that's passed along in that social group, but it doesn't seem to happen over here. So that took a long time to assemble. The other thing is you have a lot of confusion over the word culture. Humans tend to think of culture as sort of high culture. People mention things like ballet and opera. Most people have never gone to a ballet or an opera, I would venture to say, but they think of that as culture. And um, then you have anthropologists who, who only study humans, who have definitions of culture that include only humans. There's a published definition of culture in, in an anthropology journal that says culture is anything humans do. There are two things really wrong with a definition like that. One is, if aliens from another planet came here in spacecraft, you wouldn't be able to say that they have culture because they're not humans. And the other is, you can't say that any other living thing on this planet has culture because they are not humans. Well, that's not a good definition. A good definition is a set of principles or, or, a, or a set of observable things and then to see, yes, humans have that. Anything else? Oh, turns out, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other species that have culture that rely on learning. So 
All these things take time. Confusion develops around definitions. And that's why. Your book is divided into three sections. Raising families, sperm whales, creating beauty, scarlet macaws, and achieving peace, chimpanzees. Let's tackle them in order. Could you tell us a bit about the social structure of sperm whales? In particular, could you include in your answer sperm whales' extraordinary distinction that they are the only species other than humans in which individuals can recognize total strangers as members of their society while other strangers are pegged as outsiders? To state that again for emphasis, sperm whales are able to perceive that certain total strangers are in their clan and thus are okay to socialize with. You write, quote, sperm whale clans constitute a kind of national or tribal identity at a scale larger than any other non-human, end quote. Could you tell us about social structure in sperm whales? Sure. Sperm whales, oddly enough, um, maybe surprisingly enough, have a social structure that is very much like African elephants. They live in female-led family groups. Males, when they get to be adolescents, they leave those groups and they tend to wander around with other males of their own age. They go into higher and higher latitudes. And then when they get pretty big, they come back looking to mate among those female-led family groups who live mostly in the tropics. The family groups, well, sperm whales make basically one sound. They make a click. And they use those sounds in very different ways. The clicks that they use for sonar, for finding food when they're diving down to something like 3,000 feet below the surface, where there is basically no light at all, and they're hunting using sound, those clicks come about two per second, and they are the loudest sound known to be made by any living thing. They can be heard from about three to five miles away if you put a microphone in the water. And that means that they're making a sound that is literally vibrating a sphere of water that is six to 10 miles in diameter. That's a loud sound. But then they use clicks socially also. They use patterns of clicks that are a little like a simple Morse code. And those are called codas by the researchers. And using different codas or, or using certain codas with different frequencies, using some more than others, the sperm whales can announce who they are individually. So a sperm whale coming up from 3,000 feet down can say, hi, it's me. They announce what family they are in with another coda or set of codas. And then they can announce what clan their family belongs to. Different families make up clans and clans will socialize together if they meet other families from the same clan. And if they meet families from a different clan, they will avoid each other. One of the basic things that culture does, and this is very true in humans, sadly, because it's the root of a lot of our problems, culture makes individuals group together into groups that share a culture, and then it makes 
the groups avoid each other. So if you have a culture and somebody else has a different culture, the tendency is to avoid them. And this is true in most cultural animals. It tends to be very true, as I said, sadly enough, in humans. So an incredible thing about sperm whales is that there are only two species in which there are ways for total strangers who have never met to decide whether they are in the same group or not in the same group. And those two species are sperm whales and humans. The human cultural markers are things like language or clothing, religious insignia, team uniforms, all, all kinds of things like that that we have to identify various groups that people belong to. The only other species in which total strangers can tell if they're members of the same group or a different group is sperm whales. And so to recap, two complete strangers who have never met before are able to self-identify as being members of the same clan. Even though they have never met before, they know something crucial about one another, that they are members of the same clan and they will interact peacefully. And that is unique, except for sperm whales and humans. That is exactly correct. As far as we know. As far as we know, an important point. Scarlet macaws are beautiful birds. You describe them as having splashy tropical fruit punch colors and long-tailed elegance. They're up there with peacocks as among the most outrageously beautiful creatures in nature. This begs a question, however, to those of a scientific bent, why? You write, quote, many parrots are green, basically, which makes sense. The big macaws, however, are bright splashes of extravagance, colored like outlandish cornucopias of tropical fruit, which makes no sense, end quote. Here's the problem. Normally, individuals who do not blend in with their surroundings are killed easily and quickly by predators. So natural selection tends over time to blend species into their environments to make them more difficult to detect by predators. But macaws dramatically differentiate themselves from their surroundings. How could this be possible? Could you talk us through the explanation for how we can explain the dramatic beauty of scarlet macaws and also share with us the implication of this on how, to quote your own words, Females, by the power of their mate choosing, have created essentially all of the beauty in the animal world, end quote. Yeah. As you said, camouflage is a good way to be hidden. And as you also said, if you're brightly colored and you stand out, you will get noticed and that's dangerous and you may be killed. Now, there's an awful, awful lot of camouflage in the natural world, but there's also a lot of what is sometimes called decoration. And these are arbitrary colorings that don't seem to have anything to do with blending in anywhere, that actually seem to have a lot to do with simply standing out. Many male birds stand out. Many male birds are very, very colorful. Females tend to stay camouflaged, probably because they do a lot of the sitting on the nest, although there are some male birds that are colorful who also share nest sitting duties. But with birds, it tends strongly to be that males advertise because they want to be chosen by females 
and females do the choosing. So when we see these weirdly colored birds that are either brightly colored or very obvious in their markings, the reason that they are that way is because females choose the ones that are that way, and they've been doing that for hundreds of thousands of years. A male cardinal is, is bright red because females choose red cardinals who are advertising wanting to be chosen as mates. And in a way, this is one of the strangest things in the living world, I think. A lot of these beauties are really arbitrary. In one bird, it's red. In another bird, it's blue. Another bird has a, a big crest or a long tail or something like that. And the only reason is females like it that way, and they won't settle for less. People have studied this now for about 150 years, and this is the only answer that actually seems to make sense in the world that anybody has ever been able to come up with. All the utilitarian answers don't really work because a lot of these colors and weird plumes and spots and splashes are not utilitarian at all. They're, they're very, very obvious. They're, some of them are more and more extravagant. If you look at the difference between a peacock and a peahen, the male and the female, they're, they're very, very different. And that's because females choose and those males display those big tails. That's the basis on which the females are choosing. With the macaws, it's, I think, particularly striking for two reasons. One is that there are several dozen species of parrots in the New World, and almost all of them, the males and females are green. They're, they're, both sexes are camouflaged. The macaws are by far the biggest, and there are, there are a few species of macaws. All of them are very big, and all of them are very brightly colored. And in all of them, the males and the females are brightly colored. So it's, it's really quite as if, and I think this is actually the case, when they got big enough to not have to worry so much about getting ambushed by predators, their, their colors exploded because life seems to prefer beauty and color and extravagance. Natural selection is a matter of filtering things out. It's not really a selection. It's, it's sort of a misnomer. It's more of a filter. But what's called sexual selection, which is what we're talking about, which is another mechanism that Darwin coined, because he realized that his own great idea of natural selection did not account for and could not explain things like a peacock's tail. So he realized that if you watch them courting, it's the males are trying to be chosen and the females have the luxury of choosing. So he realized that something else was going on, which he called sexual selection. That actually is selection. Those are living things choosing the way they like life to look. This, I think, is a very, very profound and remarkable thing. And this seems to be what's happened with the macaws, where individuals of both sexes choose or have chosen over long stretches of evolutionary time these incredibly beautiful, extravagantly colored mates. I'm not sure if this is directly analogous, but Richard Feynman makes a similar point. 
He's talking about the beauty of flowers, why they are beautiful. And he says they are beautiful partially, if not largely, because they evolve their beauty as a means of attracting pollinators. So in a sense, when we look at flowers, what we're seeing is the aesthetic preference of insects or bees or pollinators, which is quite an extraordinary thought. Well, it's more than bees. It's, there are a lot of insects that are pollinators. And although I never heard Feynman talk about that or saw that video, he's both very right and a little bit wrong. And it's weirder than you're even alluding to for the following reason. He says flowers are beautiful, but flowers are actually not beautiful. Beauty is not a quality of anything. Beauty is a perception that a brain creates. So yes, flowers look attractive. Flowers' job is to be attractive to pollinators that are mostly insects, some bats, and some birds. The entire job of a flower is to be attractive to pollinators, and in many cases to be attractive to specific pollinators. The very weird thing is that Humans are not pollinators at all. We're not descended from pollinators. There's no utilitarian reason for a flower to look more appealing to us than a leaf or the roots. And yet, I think a strange and inexplicable thing about beauty in the living world is that many different minds create a very similar sense about what is beautiful. What is beautiful has a strangely shared universality to it, so that what resonates as attractive to an insect or to a pollinating bat, the scent and the sight of a flower, is also attractive to humans who have a multi-billion dollar flower industry because we love flowers, but there's no reason for us to love flowers. I think that beauty in the living world has to it a very strange universality. It's mysterious to me, you know, and I guess in that sense you could say it feels a little mystical. Why is it like that? I think one I think one answer is that there are a number of things that are beautiful to us for reasons that are utilitarian, you know, good food smells good because it's good food and it's good for us. So there's a good utilitarian reason for that to be attractive to us. But a sunset or the moon or the sound of wind in the treetops or or the smell and the sight of flowers or the fact that most people's favorite colors are either blue or green or both blue and green, the most common colors in the world, not rare and unusual colors, the most common colors in the living world, the sky, the water, and all the living vegetation around us. Why do we like all these things? Why is it that our mind gives us the perception of beauty of all of these things? And the only answer to that that I can come up with, it's so that we can feel good being alive. Life takes a lot of effort. Life is kind of hard. And if we didn't enjoy being alive, and if we didn't find the world beautiful if our brain didn't reward us by giving a sensation to us, a sensation that we call beautiful, the grimness of just finding food and shelter and experiencing no sense of beauty might make the work that it takes to stay alive not worth the effort. 
But beauty, I think, makes life worth the effort. It's a plausible account to a very big question. So certainly very intriguing. Could you talk to us a bit about the social world and politics of chimpanzees? Describe for us the culture of their group dynamics. And would you also recount for us the incident in which a tuberculosis outbreak killed half the males in a well-studied group of savanna baboons? And the implications this may have on to what degree chimpanzee and perhaps human politics may be more cultural and subject to revision than genetic and fixed. Chimpanzees always live in groups that are called communities, and communities usually have several dozen members, maybe a hundred or a little bit more than a hundred members. In a normal forest that's big enough, chimpanzee communities abut one another. At the end of one community's territory is the beginning of another community's territory. The communities tend to be hostile to one another. Sometimes if they meet, they fight. Sometimes those fights can turn lethal. It's a lot like tribal warfare in humans. And an odd thing is that even though those communities are hostile to one another, when females become adolescents, they leave the communities of their birth. The males stay for life, but the females leave and they have to penetrate alone into hostile territory, find acceptance, and basically live out their adult life there. So living in a group always involves certain kinds of trade-offs, and it inevitably creates certain kinds of frictions. Chimpanzee groups are always dominated by a particular male that is usually called the alpha male, the most dominant male. And that role of being the alpha is always won in a contest. Often it's a fight. Sometimes it's a very serious fight that involves injury. So the, the one that has the most power, I guess you might say in human terms, the one that can dominate all the others he, he has to always be looking over his shoulder a little bit because a coalition might form against him. A young up-and-comer might challenge him as he's starting to decline a bit due to old age. And, uh, you know, we see a, a lot of analogies to certain aspects of human society and in those dynamics. Another thing is that because living in groups always creates certain tensions, you have to have the ability to get past the tensions, which the researcher Franz de Waal has, has termed reconciliation as a major aspect of life in chimpanzee communities. So you can count on them to fight, and you can also count on them to have ways to reconcile, to get past their fights so they can continue living together because the benefits of living in a cohesive community outweigh the risks of having the community fall apart because of different individuals getting into fights. We tend to focus on this aspect when we talk about chimpanzees because the fighting really gets your attention. And chimpanzees are very emotional. There's often a lot of screaming. There's a lot of uh, upset. There's a lot of tension. But if you actually really look at it, look at the data over time, chimpanzees are peaceful more than 95% of the time. It's just that when they're not peaceful, the fighting is so dramatic 
that it tends to leave a big impression. But even the fighting in chimpanzees is cultural. In some chimpanzee populations, especially in West Africa compared to East Africa, the chimpanzees don't fight that much. The male dominance is not exerted so violently, and killing is almost unheard of. Whereas uh, in the East, killing or what, what we would call murder is a part of chimpanzee life the way that it is part of human life. It does happen, but it doesn't happen equally across the board. There are some communities and some regions where the culture is much, much more peaceful. You have another very closely related species called the bonobo, which up until the 1920s, they didn't even realize it was a different species. They look a lot like chimpanzees. They are equally related to us as chimpanzees are. And with them, it's a female who is always the most dominant, and coalitions of females enforce peace. They prevent fighting from happening. Whereas with chimpanzees, coalitions usually start fights. So chimpanzees and bonobos have sort of a mirror image of how they live, and the bonobos are almost entirely peaceful. When they're not peaceful, their fights are not very serious and they don't last very long. So violence and the tendency toward violence is partly a cultural thing. This was also seen in a group of savanna baboons, which also are known to have male dominance and often violent male dominance. But in one troop of baboons that was very well studied and carefully watched for a long time, there was an illness that swept through, tuberculosis outbreak, that killed about half of the males, and it killed the older males more than it killed the younger ones. So it tended to kill off essentially all of the ones that knew about violence as a way to gain dominance. The young ones that grew up, grew up without that as their model, and in that group it became a very, very peaceful, kind of not very baboon-like group then when not only younger ones grew up in that peaceful group, but when younger ones came into that group from outside, they adopted the more peaceable culture that that baboon group had acquired through that strange epidemic that killed so many of the older males. So I think the take-home message from all of this is that the tendency toward violence and the degree of violence and the way that violence is used is also a cultural thing that is learned and passed down. We know often in humans that people who were abused as children tend to become abusive adults. And that's because with us too, we, we learn violence. Your books tend to be reported from the field. Obviously, this requires time and effort time and effort that could otherwise be spent reading the insights others have gleaned from the field or writing your own books. Why do you find it worthwhile to go into the field? And it's okay if part of your answer is that you just like being in proximity to so many wonderful animals. Well, thank you for that permission. Um, that is the main reason, really, why I like going into the field. I, I actually, I love being in 
wild habitats with wild creatures. And my favorite kinds of people tend to be the people who study those animals. I love being in those research camps and the sense of camaraderie there, the intellectual interest, the, the questions we talk about in the evenings. I love all of that. I, I love the beauty of it. I, I love the fascination of it. And, um, and that's why. But, but also, uh, you know, from a strictly uh, workman standpoint, I need to report things authentically. So it's very important that I see and experience at least a large portion of what it is I'm talking about, because otherwise I, I wouldn't really quite feel like I know what I'm talking about. It gives your books the color that they have. They would be different books if you did not report them from the field and describe what your life is like during the writing process. Yeah, and I'm trying very hard to bring the reader along with me and share those experiences as best you can through the magic of these little squiggles on a page that we call writing. Indeed, it's, it's very effective, and the book and reader benefit from it. Animal species don't just have cultures. They're also comprised of individuals. And by that, I mean some of these animals are real characters. We meet many fascinating characters among the animals you profile in your book, and I think it would be great if you would introduce us to one. There are many to choose from, but I was hoping you could tell us a bit about Talisker. Yes, Talisker is an, a very interesting individual. He's an old chimpanzee. He predates the research project, so exactly how old he is is a matter of speculation, but I would say that about 40 years old is probably reasonable. He has a lot of status. He's given a lot of respect by the females and by the young ones who follow their mother's example in giving him respect. Respect meaning they often come over to greet him. Generally, most of the time, he's sort of um, magnanimous about it. He, he accepts it as though he enjoys it. And yet, uh, in, in, in regard to his status that he is afforded by others, you would think that his rank is equal to the alpha, the most dominant one, but he doesn't engage in any of the contests, any of the scheming or the struggles for status. He likes his status, but he never, he never challenges the alpha. And in a way that, that helps him secure his status because at his age, it's not clear that he would be able to win a contest. It's possible he once was an alpha and that when he was deposed, he was deposed rather lightly. Sometimes the depositions are very violent. Occasionally the alpha that loses dies or they entirely lose their status and they often don't live very long after that. But Talisker has found a, a very interesting way of continuing to live well into advanced age at very high status with none of the stakes or the risks of actually competing for status with the existing dominant male. He's a strategist, you know, he, he's, found, he's found a strategy that works really well for him. Your book and your books are comprised of so many characters. It's almost like reading a novel, the degree of nuance and interpersonal dynamics between these characters. 
Though your book is, for the most part, a fascinating and delightful introduction to animals and their cultures, at times your tone gets more serious. You write, quote, We the people are affecting the conditions by which almost every creature on the planet can live, the rate at which too many die too fast, as many species are sinking. Shrinking forests, melting ice, plowed grasslands, raging fires, drying rivers, and dying corals. Diminishment of all the major habitats, proxy for all who live therein, means that the number of free-living animals are the lowest ever, and mostly falling across the board. The human species has made itself incompatible with the rest of life on Earth. This is likely, hopefully not news to anyone anymore, but this fact has a special relevance concerning the subject of animal cultures. Because, as you write, quote, for many species, culture is both crucial and fragile. Long before a population declines to numbers low enough to seem threatened with extinction, their special cultural knowledge, earned and passed down over long generations, may begin disappearing, end quote. Could you talk to us quickly about why the threat humans pose to animal cultures poses an existential threat to their species, and why it is imperative that humans find ways to evolve a human culture that leaves room for beautiful non-human cultures as well? I will, I will respectfully disagree with you that it isn't news to people that humans have made ourselves generally incompatible with the rest of life on Earth. Because when I talk to people and when I speak, or at least when I used to before this COVID epidemic grounded all of us, that did seem to come as news to people. People know that there are endangered species, but they think there are only a few endangered species and that all the rest of them, therefore, must be doing okay. The fact that a species may have had tens of millions of individuals it now has a million or a half of million individuals and, and isn't therefore thought of as endangered with extinction doesn't register because the way we think about it is we only think about the emergency situations. It's kind of like having a healthcare system that is only concerned with sickness and never concerned with health. If you can't keep people healthy, you'll have a lot of sick people. And we focus almost no attention on keeping animal populations healthy, habitats viable, and those kinds of crucial things. So I do think that that is not widely um, known and not widely thought about by a lot of people. As far as what I mean when I talk about the fact that the cultures are more fragile than even the genomes of the species is that because culture answers the question of how do we live here, you can have individuals who start to lose that knowledge that is only contained in, in memories and passed along socially. So that, for instance, where certain species have disappeared and people have tried to reintroduce them. I, I mentioned the thick-billed parrots earlier where they just opened the cages and all of them died. That's because there was no remaining population there to pass on the local culture of how do we live here. We've seen similar things with other reintroductions where you might want to, I mean, this has happened actually, reintroduce bighorn sheep 
to places in the Rockies where they normally live, but they had been hunted out of existence and just take a bunch from somewhere and release them somewhere else. Well, usually that's done at a nice time of year. There's plenty to eat. If it's in the Rockies, it may be up at 7,000 feet somewhere. And then the winter comes quickly. They don't know where to go because their culture includes knowledge of migration routes down and out of the mountains and where the winter ranges and what we do when we get there. And with nobody to lead, the animals that were released in the summer tend to start dying at very high rates because they don't know what to do or where to go. They don't really know where they are. If they had even a remnant population that they could mingle with, but had kept the knowledge of that culture, they would be led out of the mountains down into the winter range and they would do okay. But when those things are lost, the risk of total extinction goes up much faster than the mere numbers would lead you to believe. I know that that's true for elephants as well, where the matriarch is responsible for the migration patterns. And that isn't genetic, it's learned. So if the matriarch is removed, the offspring, and I believe even the males, the older members of the family, simply don't know how or where to migrate. So if, if the matriarch is lost, the whole family can be lost. That's very true. Not only is that learned, but different families with different individual matriarchs would do better or worse when a severe drought hits, depending on which matriarch remembers where to go when the last drought hit and she managed to survive with her family. She might have been very young at that time, but she may remember where the last water was. And in another family, the matriarch doesn't know where that last water was. She may not be old enough or uh, her family didn't go to that place. So we see in, in a recent drought in Kenya, uh, in the Amboseli region there, one family lost, I can't remember the number, it's in the book, it, they lost something like over a dozen members, a tremendous amount of death in that family. And another family didn't lose a single individual because that matriarch knew a place that would get them through that very severe drought. And the first family, she didn't know that place and she didn't know a place that that would work. It just goes to show when these individuals die, it's not just the individual dying. It's not just the total population number going down, which alone is a matter of concern in terms of genetic diversity. But there's also this culture that is so important to their survival and adaptability that is also lost. Right, exactly. Thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, it's kind of a sweet story that I am about to get to work on. Um, I have a lot of notes along these lines. We raised an orphan screech owl, and when we released her, she decided to stay in our backyard. She acquired a mate, and they raised three chicks, and all of those chicks fledged successfully, and we watched them become wild. The kind of ironic thing is that I wouldn't have been able to watch all of this and, for instance, see their courtship going through different stages over the weeks from winter into spring or watch the development of the young ones once they came out of the nest 
and watch even the orphan that we had raised becoming a more and more competent wild mother, if not for the COVID crisis that canceled my book tours, my speaking, and all of the trips that I had planned for this year. So it's, a, it's been a horrible year in a lot of ways, and a lot of people are suffering terribly, but there are a couple of silver linings for at least some of us who are lucky enough. I was lucky enough that staying home allowed me to watch this family of owls go through um, a season of survival and growth and prosperity, I guess you could say, that I never would have been able to see, and a rare thing for a person to be able to watch. So there was at least some benefit to me in staying home, and that's a story I'm about to um, start to really work on. That's wonderful. And anyone who loves animals and has read your books or heard you speak knows that you live a somewhat charmed life in terms of all the extraordinary interactions you've been able to have. And it sounds like this is just one more. Yeah, I think that's very true. We live in the suburbs. You know, we don't live on a big ranch or out in the wilderness somewhere, but we've managed somehow to find so many little beauties in our little pocket of the world. That's wonderful. And you've been able to share those with your readers, too. Dr. Safina, your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject, and I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Well, it's been great fun speaking with you, Mark, and uh, I really appreciate your interest and giving us the excuse to have this conversation and to share it. It's been my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Carl Safina about his 2020 book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. It's a wonderful book, compassionate and empathetic, fascinating and delightful, and an important one. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy. And you've been listening to the New Books Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.